Hello, and welcome to the fourth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode, I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Daniel Mate. Daniel is a composer-lyricist from Vancouver who received the Kleban Prize for Lyrics and the ASCAP Cole Porter Award for Excellence in Music and Lyrics. His musicals include the song cycle The Longing and the Short of It, Middle School Mysteries, Hansel and Gretel and Heidi and Gunther, and The Trouble with Doug. Currently, he is adapting Russell Banks' novel The Sweet Hereafter for the musical stage. Daniel hosts a YouTube program all about lyrics called Lyrics to Go, runs a mental chiropractic service called Take a Walk with Daniel, and is working on two books with his father, Dr. Gabor Mate, coming soon from Random House. We're going to talk today about composer-lyricist Stephen Sondheim and rhyme. Hey, Daniel. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Hey, Shoshana. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad we could make this happen. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Well, before we get started, we will, with our topic, we'll start with our get to know our guest questions. So what was your first experience with the musical? My first experience really engaging with one would have been the movie version of Little Shop of Horrors in 85, I think, with Rick Moranis and uh, Ellen Green and you know Steve Martin. Um, that really stole my heart. And uh, I think it was, I had an idea about musicals that it was old music, like music that was not, not of my time and that, that I would, music that I was supposed to like and anything I was supposed to like, uh-uh, not gonna happen. I was a very headstrong kid. But here was this catchy, soulful, uh, funny, witty, um, uh, incredible score, you know, very dark also and intelligent, but accessible to me at the time. Which musical has had the greatest impact on you? I would have to say Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Mm. Um, that was the next musical that I fell in love with. And it came 15 years after Little Shop uh, or 14 years, I guess we're talking 1999 or so. I saw, I think the final performance wow. at, Jane, at Jane Street with Michael Cerverus. It just opened me up to what musical theater can do and how cool it could be. And this show rocked, but what blew my mind at the very end, and this I guess is where the impact really was, is that it turns out it's not a campy, I, I thought it was gonna be like a campy drag style show that I would maybe enjoy from a distance. I, it, it turned out it was about me somehow. It was about an identity crisis. It was about um, longing for um, completion. And then there's this closing song, which is so earned, you know? And I'm, I'm singing along, I'm lifting up my hands much to my, you know, shock and surprise. So as I was taking the subway back to the East Village that night, where I was staying with my friends in Alphabet City, because I was already a songwriter. I was writing songs on guitar, earnest, like Ani DeFranco style, confessional, you know, songs about myself and my complicated feelings and emotions. And 
but this like lit something up in my brain. Like, wait a minute, I could explode these concepts. I could give them to other people to sing. I could create wacky far out premises and like amplify what's going rather than being so literal about it while drawing from all the musical styles that I love. And I love so many, that was like an on-ramp. It was an invitation actually, and almost a challenge. It was like throwing down the gauntlet. Okay. You know, you love theater, you love music. Come on in. What is a musical people would be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised? So I mean, I have no idea what would surprise people because I don't know what people think if they think about uh, my taste, but I'll tell you uh, one that surprised me, mm-hmm. uh, which was Follies, uh-huh. um, both because I was not a Sondheim convert at the time. I had a kind of grudging respect, but I would always um, make clear, I would lead with, he's not my favorite. Mm-hmm. And I just imagined that I would imagine it would have been maudlin. And I lost my mind. I loved it so much. And I mean, obviously I was, I enjoyed the first act quite a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, the big songs from that act made an impact on me, but where I really, really, really just the floodgates open. And I mean, literally I was weeping. I was just sobbing was Loveland, mm-hmm. the start of the second act. There's something about that moment where we switch from the tension and acrimony of real life and go into this fantasy. Yeah. Um, and this beautiful little, you know, perfectly assembled little pastiche of, of those styles that I had such kind of condescension, condescension for, and here's Sondheim with such affection for them, but putting them to an extremely evil purpose. And I loved it. <laughs> And, and, but, but the pain in that too, you know, the pain of wanting these fantasies to be true mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, wanting to believe that we're going to love tomorrow. And then, and, and just somehow those first two opening songs, you know, where they're singing, everybody loves to live and lives to love, and you're going to love tomorrow. I was just with the core. It was just too much. It was just larger than life. And I, 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 I wept uncontrollably and I do not, Shoshana, weep uncontrollably easily or very often. And then, of course, you know, Buddy's little folly comes in and I just lost my mind with laughter and it's just genius. And I completely relate to that one, the ambivalent mm-hmm. guy in relationship who wants it. And then when he gets it, he can't keep it. And just the, in, the psychological insight and the, the brilliance somehow of using the artifice of the follies. I think it's the way, and I think it's similar with Hedwig because with Hedwig and with this show, you get the veneer stripped off of a, of a very emotionally powerful kind of music, but you see what's underneath. Who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist in a musical? I listed them and I'm like, oh, I have three. I can't choose. And then I realized, oh, they all have something in common. Yeah. So it's a type of protagonist and, and Hedwig is one. Right. And the composite Allison in Fun Home is one. And um, Usher in, in Michael's show, Strange Loop, came to mind. And what occurs to me is that all three of those, you know, on paper, it might sound like a passive protagonist. Well, what do they want? What are they doing? What are they trying to achieve? What, what's, the, what's, the ex, you know, what's the treasure on the treasure map that they're trying to get to? What's the heroic journey? But it's an inner journey. 
And it's a journey to understand oneself and to understand this thing called life and to make sense of it and to make sense of it amid all of the bizarreness and absurdity and pain and, you know, and, and, and adversity. And so each of these three characters is a very thoughtful student of themselves. I think they want insight, they want to understand, they want peace of mind. And I really, really can relate to that, you know? So again, it's like validating that, oh, musical theater can give voice to this too. It doesn't just have to be about plucky heroes and heroines trying to like save the town or, 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 end, or end racism or something like, right. you know, that there, that it's no, there's, there's nobility and there's, and there's certainly a lot of theater when you plumb the depths of the human mind or a human life as in fun home, you know, when you actually look at your upbringing, you actually look at the stage that was your home, you know, and, and you try to come to grips with it. It's a hall of mirrors. Any villain come to mind or a judge Turpin is great. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like a, I like a self flagellate literally self-flagellating villain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 the weepy, guilty, uh, compulsive pervert who can't help himself. I, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, what's your favorite musical that no one else has heard of? Um, I felt I had to represent Canada on this one because that's where I'm from. And there's a couple of shows that I, saw in Canada over the years that I think are really worthy and really excellent, really made an impact on me. One was the Black Rider, um, which people might've heard of, might've seen. Tom Waits wrote the songs. I think William S. Burroughs might've uh, written the book. Um, and it's not a Canadian musical and it's based on, you know, a German folk tale. Um, and Tom Waits made an album of it because I saw this show at a Vancouver Fringe Festival almost 20 years ago. But Waits was so impressed with their production of it that he gave them the exclusive worldwide rights to it. And then there's a more recent show by a Toronto, a young Toronto composer lyricist named Britta Johnson, who I wouldn't be surprised if people will have heard of if they're paying very close attention to the musical theater scene now or in a few years, because She's just, she's the real deal. She's really talented. And um, the show is called Life After. And similarly to Fun Home, it's a, it's a, the protagonist is a woman trying to make sense of her father's death mm. um, and the mysteries surrounding her father's death. Let's move into our topic then, which is uh, Stephen Sondheim and Rhyme. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about Stephen Sondheim because. Uh, you know, he just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Well, let me say, I am, I'm very honored to be the guy in the room, you know, to first broach it on this podcast. And I'm, especially since I'm, I'm really not the biggest Sondheim aficionado. I'm not a completist. I haven't seen all the shows and I've had a complicated, uh, complicated relationship with the guy's work. Uh, um, and his death really gave me a chance to, to reflect on that and to dive in deeper. And I've just been falling in love more and more unabashedly um, than yeah. I did when he was alive. I mean, I guess my first encounter with his work was Gypsy. And mm. uh, it was like the second Broadway show. I saw, I didn't know his name, like as part of that show, like it was like 89, 
1990, somewhere, I think 1990. But when I first really encountered his, him, him along with his work was Into the Woods Mm -hmm. when I was eight. Um, And we had like the VHS tapes from TV of the production that they filmed. And uh, I just became obsessed with it. And I watched it over and over. And I like brought it to school to my teacher saying we should watch this. We didn't watch it. And, uh, and as an eight-year-old, did your, 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 it sounds like your interest and your engagement with it and your investment with it went beyond just the kind of first act where you're like referencing fairy tales oh, you yeah. would have heard of. Like you, you were like on board all the way into all like the existential despair. Whole the whole show. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. It just really spoke to me. I think there was like an interview that they did after the broadcast when they, when they put that on TV and Sondheim and Lapine were like on stage, someone was interviewing them. And I used to watch that afterwards. So I knew that these were like the writers of the show. Um, So that was helpful (laughs) in knowing who Stephen Sondheim was. Um, And I was kind of at that point, like understanding that there were writers of musicals and like, you know, it all fell into place. Um, But I didn't know, like from that point until like high school, I didn't learn of another Sondheim show besides like knowing West Side Story. But again, like not really realizing Sondheim wrote the lyrics so that, you know. Um, But in high school, um, I saw, I forget what was for, I think it might've been that Follies production at Paper Mill Playhouse that my dad took me to. And I fell in love with that show. And then it was just like a cascade. (laughs) Like, all right, now I feel like I'm really obsessed with Stephen Sondheim. I'm going to like see as many productions. Like my parents took me to see Merrily We Roll Along in Philadelphia. And we then I watched the Sunday in the Park with George video. There was some stuff I saw later. Like I didn't see Sweeney Todd until grad school. Uh, I've never, and there's some I've, there's some I've never seen. Oh. I forgot. That's not a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I, I always forget that that's a Sondheim show for some reason. But um, I saw that my high school did it when I was in fifth grade and we went to see it. So I would have been like 10. So after Into the Woods. But um, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I talked about it for like weeks afterwards, like just saying lines like it just really made an impression on me and even when I saw it again like in high school it still was like oh yeah this was the funniest musical I've ever seen <laughs> well as for my own trajectory with with the man and his oeuvre um I didn't see a Sondheim show until I was in my 30s um the first one again like I said West Side Story I was aware of it I didn't want anything to do with it 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 was too soaring and opera-like and my parents loved it too much. So, you know, F that I wasn't, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to open my mind up to that. I wish I'd known Gypsy because I think I would have loved Gypsy from the start because whereas Leonard Bernstein's music was just too highfalutin for me, Julie Stein's music is so dope. Like it's just, it really, really rocks and in its own jazzy way but but the harmonic language would have made sense to me the rhythms the and the anger in it like the the intensity and also again the humor uh 
and pathos of artifice versus what's underneath. And one of Sondheim's, you know, patented, maybe his first nervous breakdown song at the end, Rose's turn. And uh, then we get to grad school and they showed us the, um, the, I don't know, the bootleg, the VHS version, maybe the TV version of Sunday in the Park with George. Yeah. And again, based on the premise, you know, I was yawning already. Right, right. Listening to it. And the first act just absolutely had my jaw on the floor, you know. And I didn't even love the music that much, but it didn't matter because it wasn't about enjoying sitting there and enjoying music. I was I mean, lyrically, I was just completely undone. Like all of my arrogance that, like, hey, I could do this better than all these clowns. Like, nope, 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 nope. There is a master in the room. There is someone who really like you cannot. His his technique is is just beyond. And then I didn't like the second act very much. Yeah. Uh, and I was really confused. I'm like, how can a show have two such different acts? Right. And this, and that actually formed the template, I think, for my, and this is, you know, it's typical people. This is such a controversial show. A lot of people just love it straight up, you know? Um, but of course, as Sondheim knew, like there are problematic things about the second act, I think. And for me, what the second act represented was one of his tendencies that I'm not so fond of, which I know a lot of people are very fond of, and it's come out since his death, which are his more soaring inspirational songs from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, the, the sour note from the earlier shows uh, was always dominant, even when there was uplift. Yeah. Here, you know, you're singing about big capital letter topics like children and art and moving on and not being, never being alone. And, and, and those kinds of ballads, I always had a kind of either a distaste for or just kind of a meh reaction to. It's where his music, I found it actually to be the most bland and kind of repetitive. I didn't, and it, what I've come to realize is that what I love the most is when he's I love it when he's inside another musical style and, but doing the Sondheim thing, it always sounds like Sondheim, but whether it's specific overtures or a little night music or, um, or, or, you know, the British operetta and the dark, the darkness of Sweeney Todd or, um, or assassins with the, with the patriotic, um, you know, backbeat of that show. That's when I get the most engaged and, in, in Into the Woods and in, in, in um, Sunday in the Park with George and, and in, in parts of Merrily We Roll Along, I'm, I find myself being like, oh yeah, okay, I'm, I'm listening to a Sondheim song. And, and somehow the, the big themes don't touch me the way the specific character mm-hmm. moments do. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm, it feels like a bit of a sermon or a lullaby, like I'm being soothed or something, like I'm being told something about life and I don't go to the theater actually for that. That's not why I go to the theater. Um, I go, like I go to a folk music festival for that, you know, <laughs> like I go to the Indigo Girls for that. Um, so that set up a kind of tension in me between like, I have no choice but to idolize this guy and his work. But at the same time, I'm a little suspicious of all the worship and all the hero worship. 
It's not like he got into his middle age or into his mid late period and just stayed there. Then he does assassins, right? <laughs> which which is which is one of the sharpest tools in his kit. It's jagged and serrated. It's it it cuts really deep, and it's brilliant and it's exciting and it's got all the aliveness and the irony and the the anger and the 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 insight and and the critique, even more political critique than he'd ever done. You know, yeah. so. He's won me over steadily. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, kind of coming in to him when already being surrounded by people who idolize him, whereas like my trajectory was more like when I was watching Into the Woods at eight years old, like I was the only Sondheim fan around. <laughs> like, I, like, Am I the only one seeing this? I was like, <laughs> only me and Sondheim, you know? <laughs> And it wasn't until I got to high school when like my chorus did like an into the woods medley. And, and like, yeah. you know, I was like, why are all these people liking Sondheim? Like he was my thing, you know, <laughs> and that like yeah. kind of changed my relationship with him a little bit. That's then I got into, I was like, well, I'll have to find other Sondheim shows. So I, you know, that's kind of when I found like Follies and Marilee, like shows that people in high school didn't know yet, you know? And then, yeah, and then to get to grad school and be like, all right, well, I'm definitely not <laughs> special anymore here. I'm going to have to find other composer lyricists to love. Well, now. you remember that you remember the breathless <laughs> worship of the guy in the room from so yeah. many, you know, like he was the reason people got into musical theater. And yeah, it pissed me off. Like I was just like, you know, one guy can't be this good. And it turns out he is. It's not a knock on someone that they have a, a couple of shows or a certain style of song that I'm not so into, but like, yeah, these big capitalized theme songs never quite did it for me. It just kind of takes me out. And I'm just like, well, the story must have come to a halt for us to, to sit here and, and get this. And it felt like people, it was a, it was a difficult time and people wanted to be reassured and people wanted to feel, you know, it, a lot of people were very disillusioned in the eighties, you know, so I can understand it in context. Um, and also he was exercise, he was stretching out, he was stressed, you know, expressing a side of himself that maybe his earlier work didn't get to do. And he was enjoying a new collaboration with a new director who brought out new sides of him. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a player hater about it. Like, uh, do your thing, but, but anyway, we could get back to the stuff we love. Right. Because there's so much to love. I was reading son reading over, you know, Sondheim on rhyme and his, uh, collected lyrics book. Uh, I mean, I'm, I feel like I did learn about rhyme from him. Like when I read stuff, I, I mean, this book wasn't out yet, but he had written about it other places. Sure. And, uh, you know, what, like, I, I guess the whole concept of like why lyrics rhyme and like why you would, you know, why would you, when you would employ rhyme and when not, and, you know, all mm -hmm. that stuff. And um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, but I, and, and we, you know, may have our own theories on that too. And I guess why there's Sondheim's like, you know, why lyrics rhyme, they emphasize words that are point up words. That's uh, pleasure and for pleasure and verbal playfulness, or like, it's a character, this character rhymes uh, mm -hmm. a lot, you know, or something like that. Um, but what, what are your thoughts on, you know, his well, yeah, or your own. Well, whenever I read his stuff on rhyme, I can I concur completely. Mm -hmm. uh, and I 
it helps me sharpen my focus on 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 what rhyme does. There are principles of what rhymes do that so you know rhymes are punchlines. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're inherently punchliney. And I don't mean that in like a yuck yuck kind of way, but there's a setup and there's a payoff. And you don't know when it's going to come. You maybe not even you might not know that it's going to come, but it's symmetry. You're creating you're you're pointing to you're 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 saying to the ear and to the brain and to the linguistic faculties of the brain in real time, right? Hey, look, these two things are connected. And so the song is held together formally. It's, it creates, it's fun to listen to creates anticipation, but also it creates a, I think of it as like a beam or if you think about like, you know, uh, like two goalposts in soccer and then the, the bar that goes over top, the crossbar, you know, it like creates a connection between two thoughts, two words, two parts of speech, um, two spellings of the same sound, you know, and, and that's why I find that rhymes are extra satisfying when you can, you know, I feel like uh, hound and crowned, Mm -hmm. I'm just, off the top of my head, right, are in some ways more exciting than hound and found. Yeah. Uh, but actually, no, hound and found are both, is also exciting because found is a past tense verb and hound is a noun. You see what I'm saying? Like if you have like hat, rat, mat is not as interesting as, as putting that in there. Why? Because it's a conjunction. And I don't know why that makes a difference somehow, but I feel like that's the kind of detail that Sondheim understood intuitively because you're you're creating these these connections, these strands, you're tying these strands together across the language and making the brain work. And it's fun. One thing I was reading in, uh, in his book that I thought was interesting is that he said that um, if you can rhyme two words that aren't spelled the same, that also creates like uh, you, you respond more to that because your brain didn't think that those words would go together. Like one example he gave was um like in uh in uh from folly is the the it's either you're gonna love tomorrow or the other one that mm-hmm. one has harakiri in it yeah um, right i hate that. i hate that line yeah but like rhyming like query query deary cheery yeah 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 absolutely Query comes in Query, like, oh, like i never thought about that word rhyming with that because it doesn't visually look even when the 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 listener doesn't notice like there's many many of his rhymes that you're not going to sit there and be like wow great rhyme but they're still they're still tangling your brain up in really enjoyable yoga poses (laughs) yeah you know and and then you can use rhyme to set up expectations and then either fulfill them or not fulfill them and then you can use a moment of not rhyming in order to you know, rhyme can mean a lot of things, I think, and and everything from the lyricist showing off and having fun, which is a big part of its function in hip hop music, for instance. Yeah, I wanted to also just touch briefly on perfect versus imperfect rhymes, because Sondheim, sure. you know, didn't like imperfect rhymes. Uh, and uh, just for people who uh, may not understand the difference uh a perfect rhyme to so this is Sondheim's definition and I think it is you know a standard definition but two words or phrases whose final accented syllables sounds alike except for the consonant sound which precedes them or the lack of a a consonant sound right 
um like a you know vowel sound and uh or a you know coming from that and uh and it's funny like I think a lot of people just without that definition understand what <laughs> what rhyme is but when I remember when I heard that definition I was like oh like I never thought about it that way and an imperfect rhyme would be close but no cigar right and you know um and it, you know we're trained in pop music to just normalize that yeah you know time and mind for some reason are always always rhymed yeah um, same and change are always like like if you're like if you're going to do an imperfect rhyme at least do a new imperfect rhyme i i do think that when it comes to fast paced things mm -hmm. um like in hip hop perfect rhyming does not matter right like the big rhymes, the big money rhymes at the end of lines, if you can make that perfect, that's exciting. Or a multi-syllabic rhyme where multiple syllables rhyme at a time, you know, and, and the most revered MCs can do that. But often it's about assonance. It's about sound alikeness. It's about the, the flow. And I think sometimes when I'm listening to Sondheim stuff, it's a, it can be a little finicky for my taste that, that all the, like, and sometimes it completely and absolutely works. It's totally welcome, you know, but I don't in my own writing always stick to that mm -hmm. because sometimes I want to create a looser feel. Yeah. I want to create a, I don't, I don't want the character to come off like they, you know, went to linguistic school or something or, or, or phonetic school. Like, and, and the fact is, and you can hear it all across Hamilton, um, and you know, Miranda rhymes perfectly a lot, but he, he gives himself license to make sounds just sound really great, right. you know, him coming at you, spitting at you. So that's something I think Sondheim may be underrated or underappreciated, or it was just, it just wasn't of his time. Like that, that's a, you know, so I don't think it's automatically, I'm not, I'm not as disdainful of imperfect rhyme as he is, but I'm absolutely as respectful of perfect rhyme as he is. And I think you have that, that often if you're rhyming imperfectly as a lyricist in the theater, you just, you can just work harder, like find there's some, there is something better mm -hmm. because the symmetry of the sounds is connected to a symmetry of thoughts, right? And you can find the perfect sounds, the perfect lines with the perfect, the same ending, the match. It's a beautiful thing. And it, something in the body relaxes, you know, actually kinesthetically I find. And yet when it's imperfect and it could have been perfect, like, you know, that I just, I'm always left kind of like with this limp feeling. I'm like, I think he's right. God is in the details and specificity and precision. Uh, musical theater songwriting is a very precise right. thing. And that doesn't mean you have, and, and, but here's the other thing. You don't have to be a rhymey songwriter. There are. Right. One of my favorite shows of the last 10 years, Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. You'd be hard-pressed to find too many rhymes in that show. Right. But I love that score because it's doing something else. It's lifting prose off the page and, and making it sing. Right. You know, and, and finding song forms out of what sound like prosaic statements that shouldn't rhyme. And I don't know what Sondheim thought of that show, but I, I really, you know, appreciated it. And then I think we were going to talk about this too. Maybe we can segue to it. There are moments where Sondheim doesn't rhyme. 
Yeah, I was just thinking about that when you were talking about it, because, yeah, I mean, if or at least pulls back on the rhymes, like pulls back on the rhymes. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. So I have a contrasting example from the same show. And I think there are two consecutive songs in the same score. So it's from Pacific Overtures. Yeah. On the one hand, you got four black dragons. Right. On the other hand, you got chrysanthemum tea. There's a single rhyme that I can think of. So I, I've seen this a few times in Pacific Overtures, where he he'll rhyme one line, like maybe like the second line in one verse rhymes with the second line in the next verse, something right. Like Rhyming that. across stanzas. Yeah. So, so what's the what's the example there? Oh, I see here the reciter says, "Then the hooves clattered, and the warriors that were there, driving quickly through the panic like the gulls." And the swords were things of beauty as they glided through the air high. Like yep. And even before, and even before that, then they crowded into temples and they flapped around the square. Oh yeah. And the, you know, um, yeah. so, and, and that's the middle section. That's a kind of, yeah. then that's the men right. there. So right. second line is, is seems to, in those sections seems to be the, the rhyme. Then the hooves clattered and the warriors were there Diving quickly through the panic like the gulls And the swords were things of beauty as they glided through the air Like the gulls Right, and I, lo I love rhyming across stanzas. I love doing it. It's, and I love it. it. It's very satisfying. And that's the kind of rhyme you often don't notice. Yeah. It's subliminal. Mm, but yeah. it creates a kind of momentum, I think. But what's interesting, I think, is if you look at what's happening in that song, it's about these, you know, people on the coast of Japan looking out to sea and seeing something they can't comprehend because they've never seen it before. They don't have a concept for it. Right. So one of them sees dragons. One of them sees volcanoes. Um, there are these warships that are coming, or I, I guess there's. I don't know if they're warships or ships, diplomatic ships. I actually haven't seen the show, but they're they're foreigners. Um, and they each see them from their own point of view, right? Uh, there's a thief, I think, and the, and the other character. I'm not sure what, I can't remember what he's doing. But they each have their own interpretation. And it's so, the point. here's the point, I think. Or here's my point. Um, it's so foreign to them. They can't make sense of it. There's no rhyme or reason right. you know like and they just and so what does he give us instead of rhyme he gives us rhythmic you know consistency 
I was standing on the shore, the da 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 da, the da 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 da, the da 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 da, those, which is a, you know, that's a very Sondheimian lyric, right? A, a, a very Sondheimian uh, scan, that, that kind of, um, with a big landing on that last syllable. I was rifling through the house of some priests in Raga. It was only after dawn, they were sleeping still. I had finished with the silks, I was hunting for the gold when I heard them getting up, so I bolted through a door which looked out to sea. And I love that kind of homonym on I looked out to sea, but also does it is it written as S-E-A or S-E-E? Uh S-E-A. Uh, right. The, the C over there. Right, I looked out to see four black dragons, but it works just as well with the other spelling. Yeah. Um, four black dragons spitting fire, right? Mm-hmm. And they're so awe-inspiring and um, on their own, and there's no time to be clever or rhyme. Right. You know, it's just an exclamation, right? So it it doesn't need it. It was only after dawn, they were sleeping still. I had finished with the silks. I was hunting for the gold when I heard them getting up. So I bolted through a door, which looked out to sea and there came. Okay, right. Yeah, C-S-E-A. But it, it makes us listen for each word. Silks, gold, getting up, a door to sea. It's a list of really vivid imagery. And these people are also, what they're doing is they're trying to describe something to people who have never seen it and can't even imagine it. So it's very vivid and it's very intentional. Right. They've got to get this image across. Chrysanthemum Tea, on the other hand. And the next song. This is the next song, which is maybe my favorite Sondheim song of all time. Mm-hmm. Barely has a melody. It's almost a rap. Um, and... It's, you know, it's one of these great story songs like God, That's Good and Mm -hmm. a few others. And, you know, he writes that he loves writing these kinds of songs. Well, what's happening here? The rhyming is very insistent. There's like 10 or 12 different rhymes for bay, Mm -hmm. right? There's ships in the bay. They've been sitting there all day with a letter to convey and they haven't gone away. And there's every indication that they're planning to stay, uh, my lord. So even when he takes a little longer to get to the rhyme, even when he adds kind of a, a little couplet, it ends with, so, you know, da-da-da-da-a, 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 da-da-da-da-da-da-da-a. Well, what's this character trying to do? Trying to get a message through to a completely decrepit and, you know, doddering senile leader who really needs to get with it because there's some serious shit going on in the Bay and they need an answer. And this goes on over weeks or days at least, you know? Uh, and so, and he's probably hard of hearing and, and mentally kind of incompetent. So the repetition is necessary and making the point, there are ships in the bay. It's the day of the rat, my Lord. There are four days remaining, and I see you're entertaining, but we should have a chat, my lord. Mm. To begin, if I may, my lord, 
I've no wish to remind you, but you'll notice just behind you there are ships in the bay. They've been sitting there all day with a letter to convey, and they haven't gone away. And there's every indication that they're planning to stay, my lord. Have some tea, my lord, some chrysanthemum tea. It's an herb that's superb for disturbances at sea. Is the shogun feeling better? Good, now what about this letter? Is it wise to delay, my lord? With the days disappearing, might we benefit from hearing what the soothsayers say, my lord? That insistence is conveyed by the rhyming. The rhyming, again, the content dictates the form. Yeah. Um, there are mostly couplets um, and very, very clever ones, of course, right? Uh, if the tea the shogun drank will serve to keep the shogun tranquil. That's amazing. Yeah. And those words are so germane. Like you couldn't, you, if, you, if you listed the key words of the story of what's happening right now, the key phrases, one is, will he or will he not drink this tea? Mm -hmm. right? Given we know what's in the tea, like it's of serious plot importance. And his tranquility, his peace of mind, his his competence, his ability. And he just finds those those words and they happen to, he puts them in an order in a way that makes them rhyme. I'd love that. Yeah. But, um, so that's just a couplet. But then there, and, and, you know, we consult the Confucians, they have mystical solutions. That's still very insistent. Right. But then there's these, and then there, there's these moments where <laughs> the, the machinations of, I guess this is the Shogun's mother. Mm -hmm. we, we, we see her strategy a bit more, right? Um, uh, in the quatrains that he puts in. So for instance, my favorite one, I decided if there weren't any shogun to receive it, it might act, it would act as a deterrent since they'd have no place to leave it. It's the day of the rabbit, my lord. There's but one day remaining, and besides the fact it's raining, there are ships in the bay which are sitting there today, just exactly where they sat on the day of the rat. Oh, and speaking of that, my lord, when the ships came our way on that first disturbing day, and I gave consideration to this letter they convey, I decided if there weren't any shogun to receive it, it would act as a deterrent since they'd have no place to leave it. It and they might go away, my lord. Do you see what I say, my lord? In the tea, my lord, the chrysanthemum tea, an informal variation on the normal recipe. Though I know my plan had merit, it was slow in execution. If there's one thing you inherit, it's your father's constitution, and you're taking so long, my lord. That's more thought, that's more careful plotting in the speakers in the singings singers on mind but then she goes right back to the insistent rhymes because it's probably too complicated for him and they might go away my lord do you see what i say my lord this is where she's revealing that she's been poisoning him so alternating between these impatient rhyme schemes you might say and these patient rhyme schemes but there isn't too much time for those so they really stand out and they're very um they're very satisfying. Yeah. And it, so the rhyming is, in other words, it's matching the storytelling. And it would be really weird if in the middle of all of those beautiful rhymes for the sound A, he like 
use the word game or something. Right. <laughs> it would just be really bizarre. Yeah. It would lose like the the power that it this the rhyme has to That's do. right. Or if he used an identity, right? So if it was like uh convey oive, like <laughs> which I guess oive would have fit. The rhymes are not about cleverness there. They are clever, but they have a dramatic storytelling impact that right. this person is persistent. Right. Right. Yeah. I was thinking my my example of Sondheim pulling back on rhymes was uh not a day goes by from Merrily We Roll Along. It's something I I mean, there are some rhymes in there, but it's so not about the it it's not about the rhymes at all. Not a day goes by. Not a single day. But you're somewhere a part of my life. And it looks like you'll stay. As the days go by, I keep thinking, when does it end? Where's the day I'll have started forgetting? But I just go on thinking and sweating and cursing and crying and turning and reaching and waking and dying. Yeah, I mean, there are rhymes in it, crying and dying, but I just, um, day and stay, but like, there's no like internal rhymes, there's no like, rhymes that you're like, ooh, that was like a cool rhyme, <laughs> you know, it's just like really about this moment and this emotion, and it just reminds me that like, you know, Sondheim doesn't need to rhyme, like that's not what he's like we always think about Sondheim's rhyming and like how it, you know, in all these songs, but like, you know, then he writes a song like this, which I love. And like, there's, you know, it's not him and his rhymiest. Yeah. For sure. And then like the last part is just repeating day after day after day, you know, it's just like <laughs> the same word over and over again. Day after day after day after day after day after day after day till the days go by till the days go by till the days go by has such an effect um like emotional effect and yeah like sure he could have like put a bunch of rhymes in there but that's just not this is not that the song is and not what he's doing one of his quirks that i've never heard people talk about but he does it every single show almost every song i've never heard anyone do it this much he has someone's name or a pet name that comes after a comma and the word before the comma rhymes. Right, right. Love your eyes, George. I love your thighs, George. I love your size, George. I love your pies, George. Surprise, George. Uh, you know, hey, old friend, what do you say, old friend? Ooh, Mr. Todd, to Mr. Todd. Uh, you know, constantly, if you actually look. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, Margie, I'm, uh, I'm back, babe. Something, help me unpack, babe. Right. constantly like constantly and I, I sometimes it gets on my nerves um 
but it's just but and sometimes it's great but but uh it's an interesting uh, stylistic quirk yeah i'm not yeah and i'm not sure like what what it's achieving exactly That's well it's it, it, well it's useful musically if you want the second last note to be the sort of you know da 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 Mm-hmm. Right. Dun, dun. Well, that's a very Sondheimian uh, rhythm as well. Dun 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 dun. dun. So you uh, use like a a word that's you know a, a what is it? Masculine and feminine rhymes. That's or, right. The masculine yeah. rhymes are the one that's just like on the last syllable, where the feminine rhymes would be like never and clever. You know. A, yeah. Yeah, but it, but what it also creates is like <laughs> people talking at each other <laughs> and not necessarily getting through, right? You know, um, and and which is very much often a part of, uh, or or just excitement. Like in the case of Mrs. Lovett, you know, she just can't contain herself, mm-hmm. um, and she loves saying his name. She's kind of obsessed with him. In terms of looking at rhyme too. I guess I would have to talk about, uh, I mean, there's so many good rhyme, rhyme songs, but the Lucy and Jesse uh, or Abbott uh, underneath song from Follies. Yeah. Moment. Uh, I mean, those uh, songs, Phyllis's Folly, right? Phyllis's Folly. Sometimes it's Lucy and story of Lucy and Jesse. Sometimes it's Abbott uh, underneath. And they're both similar in terms of rhyming. Like they're both like, whoa right but underneath was written for the london production yeah and actually that when i first saw follies at paper mill playhouse they did that song uh, but underneath Mm -hmm. that production so that's like the one i knew like that's that's the dominant one (laughs) in my head Mm -hmm. um, for that moment and i actually prefer it Mm -hmm. to lucy and jesse even though there's there's a lot I like in Lucy and Jesse, I, but I think I like that song. Like whenever someone talks about the story of Lucy and Jesse and what it's about, I'm like, yes, that makes so much sense for her and her character. But when I'm experiencing the actual song, I like don't get any of it. <laughs> I, yeah, I never got it. I, but until this morning, I listened to it. I'm like, oh, she's telling the story of her and Sally. She's she's. Well, and that I've actually never heard of that interpretation but I the one I heard today when I was listening to someone else talk about it was like it's her younger self and her older herself now and she's like okay and she's like trying to combine the two selves but actually her and Sally that also makes a lot of sense that this this sort of competition between them and, and that really they they admired or envied or wanted to be each other and that you know they're vying for the same men and and uh the yeah yeah like one, she like kind of wanted, you know, Sally's life and in a way, yeah. uh, or some parts of it anyway. And like Sally would certainly want some parts of hers. Yeah. And like, if I could just like be a whole person. Yeah. Things. Um, yeah. So like, there's just something in like the experience of that song versus like how I think about that song that doesn't quite connect. Um, which is kind of why I prefer Abba underneath. Cause like, that it connects that much better there for me. Mm. Um, whereas like, it just, it's, it's a little more clear or, you know, it's more clearly to me about this woman who is so afraid of what's inside of her that yeah. she is, and, and what if there's nothing inside of me? 
What if there's nothing in there? Right? Yeah. Um, in the Lucy and Jesse song, he writes that he was he was channeling Harburg in terms of, and this is something again. I think this is underrated in musical theater writing. Um, sometimes alliteration, um, mm -hmm. and also sound alikeness. So Lucy, Lacy, Lassie, um, you know, keeping the consonant sounds and changing the vowel sounds, which is kind of the opposite of rhyming. It's like the it's like the the photonegative of rhyming. Yeah. It's like you know. Um, and uh, Jesse, Juicy. Lucy is juicy, but terribly drab. Jesse is dressy, but cold as a slab. Lucy wants to be dressy. Jesse wants to be juicy. Lucy wants to be Jesse. And Jesse, Lucy, you see, Jesse is racy, but hard as a rock. Lucy is lazy, but dull as a smock. Jesse wants to be lacy. Lucy wants to be Jesse. That's the sorrowful Gracie. It's very messy. Who's? Uh, you know, he's a big Harburg admirer, and I know both you and I are as well. Um, so that's that's really fun about that song. And 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 again, content that takes dictates form. It's it it feels like interchangeability. Right. Right. It's like it's like a like a word puzzle where you just change one sound and or one letter and you come up with a completely different word at the end. And it's like changing, just switching places. And he doesn't write about that. He didn't, he didn't indicate that that was deliberate, but I see a connection there that, that again, the kind of rhyming chosen matches the moment. It, it, it can't, it, it feels like what you're singing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just think, especially, I mean, the Abbott underneath rhyming is like, is really, like tour de force for me. And I, I remember as a teenager, like here, like that was the first, my, that was really like my first encounter, I think with like, wow, look at how Sondheim rhymes, <laughs> like, like into the woods. Like, obviously there's a lot of rhyming in there, but that was never like, and I guess maybe because I was young, like that was never like my main takeaway from that show. <clears throat> but when I encountered Follies and I think specifically ah, but underneath, I was like, okay, wow, like this is, this is rhyming. <laughs> like this is amazing, like rhyming right now. She was smart, tart, dry as a martini. Ah, but underneath, she was all a heart, something by Puccini. Ah, but underneath, in the depths of her interior were fears She was inferior and something even eerier But no one dared to query her superior exterior Do you have another song you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, I don't know that it's... Uh, I'm attracted to it for the rhyming, although I think the rhyming is is powerful and we can talk about it, but it would be another national anthem. Yeah, yeah. That song destroys me. Again, I started crying when I was sort of talking to my girlfriend about like why I love it so much. And my favorite parts are not... I mean, the rhymes just work, really. They're like, they're like tent poles in the ground, right? And they're, they, they're, they, again, are these patient rhymes that stretch across several lines, right? There's another national anthem, folks, for, for those who never win. 
for the suckers, for the pikers, for the ones who might have been. But before that, you know, the ones who can't get in to the ballpark, the repetition of the word ballpark, like right. what a specific choice. Yeah. And that melodic phrasing is, <laughs> that's another thing, another one of his things from the 80s that I don't love, da-da-da-da, or da-da-da-da-da, festival, you're not serious. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but in this case to the ballpark it's like it the rhythm of it is so martial and the, that word just jumps out you're not going to rhyme that he doesn't he doesn't try to say all park or something like that you know <laughs> uh, or, uh that that all-american image and he just uses it differently three different times or four different times and i the one that you cheer at the ballpark you know the ones who can't get into the ballpark Right. and the anger of it and uh and i love again these non-rhyming words for the suckers for the pikers but that sound alikeness right the the k r s in there when the other national anthem folks the ones that can't get in to the ballpark spread the word there's another national anthem folks for those who never win for the suckers for the pikers and and the the insistent repetitiousness of a really exciting rhythmic phrase da 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 da, da, da you know um and then just finding really lines that don't necessarily rhyme but they he's like hanging them on these really cool wires of a certain shape and so I think I, that song to me is the perfect balance of rhyming and not rhyming for the mood of it. It's not fucking around that song. That song is absolutely, it's got your attention. You know, it better have your attention. And if it doesn't have your attention, you're in trouble right. because it's saying something you don't want to hear. And that's what I love about Sondheim. Mm. That's, that's when I love Sondheim the most, when he's telling us things we don't want to hear. Yeah. And I guess that's why the the stuff we talked about the the more soaring sentimental stuff, you know, I, I sense that that's like almost it almost feels like fan service. Yeah. And I I just really love how he has the integrity and the courage and the the balls and the the and the drive to show us something like to give us more to see but not necessarily a pretty picture. Right. I find that just so beautiful and so moving. That's the Sondheim I love the most. And then also the cruel Sondheim, like, you know, the, the, the bitter petty Sondheim of, you know, could I leave you and epiphany and, uh, well, there's a lot of different sides to him that I love, yeah. but, but yeah, what a guy. And and I, I have to make my peace with the fact that I never got to speak to him and that he never probably heard of me. You know, I've been dreading his death for 15 years and not because I worship the man, but because I imagine this is so pathetic. <laughs> but also very human, I think, in 2021. Um, I knew that social media would be full of eulogies and obituaries and, and tears and people supporting each other and people quoting, no one is alone. and. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I was like, you know, I'm going to save my grief for when Noam Chomsky dies or, 
Donald Fagan does. You know, you guys can have Sondheim. And like already setting up my oppositional stance to his memorialization, it ended up being very, very fruitful for me. It really impacted me, his death. And it made me think about all those things and all of my, you know, how much I actually care about this work. Yeah. And how much I appreciate the work he did and, and the doors he opened. Um, in terms of what you could write about, what mm -hmm. you could have people sing about, um, and and the formal rigor he brought to it, and and but also just wrestling with my feelings about the man, yeah, even some of them that were kind of unpleasant for me, or not not fawning, was really uh, bracing. It was like really, it felt like a kind of a, an emotional cleanse. <laughs> it was like I, I was like like, and so I found myself you know, a few days after his death, feeling like actually really connected with him. Like if I could write to him from to the great beyond, yeah, I would tell him all the things I'm telling you now. Like I had this complicated relationship with you. Right. And, and, and that was a really stimulating crucible in which to develop my identity as a musical theater writer and as a person, just as a grown up, you know, as an artist. Um, and that's what happens with, the towering giants, you know, of any discipline, right? They, they, they're more than just heroes. They're like, um, they're mile markers, they're reference points. They're, they're growing edges that we, we come up, we butt up against them and we wrestle with them and we fall in love with them. We fall out of love with them, whatever. And they, they just, they're just there as they're one to grow on, you know? So, now he may have found that to be a terribly self-indulgent letter to receive. And I, I, I would have loved to have received a caustic, witty reply, like get over yourself. But, uh, but that's what I would have said. That would have been my truth. I would have hoped that he would appreciate that. Cause it seems like he didn't want to be thought of as like a God of musical. Right. Like, didn't he write a, didn't he write a song called God that has like yeah. a line about, you know, overrating. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't know if I, like as an artist, like I would want people to wrestle with my work, but, yeah. you know? Yeah, I would want people to get to know themselves better as, as in the process of engaging with what I put out there. Should we move on to our next section? Why is this so good? So uh, we're going to talk about uh, Little Tin Box from Fiorello getting off oh, great. of Sondheim. Yeah, but over but over to a writer that he greatly admired. Yeah, uh, Sheldon Harnick and I have met Sheldon Harnick. Yeah, he's such a warm songwriter. Yeah, so this is from his show uh, with Jerry Buck, Fiorello, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, why did you pick this song for? Why is this so good? Well, I mean. I just love the, the the cast album recording of it. I love those voices from that era, the real era of character voices in musical theater. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they were putting on voices. Those were their voices. Right. <laughs> I mean, they were actors, but, you know, these thick New York accents, these sort of big bellowy sounds. So I just love, I just love the sound of the song. I love box music. It's, it's just tremendous fun. I mean, what it's about is fun to watch 
come to life, you know, political corruption. It's fun to have a song about political corruption. The form is, it couldn't be simple. It's a verse chorus song, Mm -hmm. you know, and, or A-B-A-B, you know, as, as they might call it. And, um, the rhymes are all fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he doesn't over rhyme. Mr. X, maybe we ask you also well, the format. First of all, every verse is it's an, it, it's a, a deposition or a, a hearing, right? It's like, or a congressional question period, right? They're asking. Yeah. Or they're, they're simulating that. I think I, I forget the exact context. Okay. So it's almost like a mock they're, yeah, they're, I- I could be wrong, I, but I think so. Okay, great. So then we have three verses, each of which is a different question to a different, you know, corrupt politician. That's the first half of each A, and then the back half of each A is the answer. Mm-hmm. And the, the answer always leads up to this incredibly fun chorus, a little tin box, right? Yeah. Which itself is such a funny picture. And a funny way of minimizing their rank hypocrisy and corruption. It's just a little tin box. There's nothing unorthodox about it, you know? Um, And the chorus is almost always the same, but they, but he changes just enough to make it fun. A little tin box, a little tin box, that a little tin key unlocks. There is nothing unorthodox about a little tin box. About a little tin box. About a little tin box. In a little tin box. A little tin box. That a little tin key unlocks. There is honor and purity. Lots of security. In a little tin box. There's just enough variation. To be to 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 be fun and to flesh out the whole world of the topic, and to have some great lines. But he doesn't overrhyme. He can be very clever. But if you listen to this, Mister X, may we ask you a question? It's amazing, is it not, that the city pays you slightly less than fifty bucks a week, yet you've purchased a private yacht? Well, that third line doesn't have anything rhyming. Right. Just discursive. It's just a. a it's like a technical. It's like the transcript of a hearing. Right. Right. Then there's a little bit of alliteration in the final one. Purchased a private yacht. Not and yacht totally is the kind of rhyme we were talking about where you take two totally different etymologically and spelling wise, different kinds of words. It's fun. That's just a fun rhyme. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you ask the question and then uh, the the back half of the A has an A-B-A-B rhyme structure. I am positive your honor must be joking. Any working man can do what I have done. For a month or two, I simply gave up smoking. Okay, we're already giggling, you know, like, and we know that there's going to be something fun coming, a payoff. And I put my extra pennies one by one into a little tin box. So the verse segues seamlessly into the chorus, Mm -hmm. which sets us up to always be excited for that moment. How is he going to get into the chorus this time? Because we know what's coming. Witness, Mr. X, may we ask you a question? It's amazing, is it not? That the city pays you slightly less than 50 bucks a week, yet you've purchased a private yacht. I am positive your honor must be joking. Any working man can do what I have done. 
For a month or two, I simply gave up smoking, and I put my extra pennies one by one into a. So he uses verse chorus songs in musical theater are really tricky. Yeah. Like pop chorus, like we are living in a material world and I am a material girl is the chorus every single time. She doesn't vary it up. And that's fine in pop music. But in theater, the story is moving along in real time. Right. We already know that the little tin key unlocks it and there's nothing unorthodox about it. So what, what new? Right. Uh, how are you going to up it? How are you going to up the ante? And so that, that, that verse is humorous. You know, he's like, oh, it's not a big deal. I just gave up one of my habits and just saved my pennies. And that's how I'm able to afford this, this lifestyle. Well, the second one is a little bit more uh, outrageous. Why we've been told you don't feel well, and we know you've lost your voice. But we wonder how you managed on the salary you make to acquire a new Rolls Royce. You're implying I'm a crook and I say no, sir. There is nothing in my past I care to hide. I've been taking empty bottles to the grocer. And each nickel that I got was put aside. That he got was put aside. Mr. Why, we've been told you don't feel well. And we know you've lost your voice. Well, that's really funny, right? Mm-hmm. How convenient. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, it's very godfather, but we wonder how you managed on the salary you make. There's that pattery third line that doesn't have any, um, any rhymes in it to acquire a new Rolls Royce. So at first it was purchase a private yacht here. It's acquire a new Rolls Royce, lots of R's in there, but not ostentatiously. It's not Noah coward, like alliteration. It's just, it's just fun. It just flows well. And then, you know, now the rhymes start to get cleverer as we go along. And this is, I think, very conscious, or at least it's deliberate. It's purposeful. You're implying I'm a crook. And I say, no, sir, there is nothing in my past I care to hide. I've been taking empty bottles to the grocer and each nickel that I got was put aside. So first we had pennies and now we have nickels. So again, like the, the scale of the corruption is going up yeah. and and the, then the explanations are getting more and more implausible. Right. And then, and then the irony is laid on even thicker in the chorus. There's faith, hope, and charity. Like there is none of those things. Like those are the opposites of what we're talking about here. But hard-won prosperity, that's the point. Right. That's the point, right? And then there's no bridge. There's no, you know, C-section or anything. We just go to the third verse. Well, if you're going to do that, then the third verse better top them all. Mm-hmm. And he does. He does with this fantastic repetition thing that he sets up in the second one, right? Uh, and each nickel that I got was put aside. The chorus goes, that he got was put aside. Well, that just is like an, an echo. We expect that. But mm-hmm. here we get the brilliant, um, well, from the start, it's Mr. Z, you're a junior official and your income's rather low, yet you've kept a dozen women in the very best hotels. Would you kindly explain how so? Well, now we're talking about, you know, a dozen women. So now it's not a yacht, right? not a Rolls Royce. It's even more scandalous. And he saves that for the third one. Again, not a coincidence. 
<laughs> and then I can see your honor doesn't put it, pull his punches and it looks a trifle fishy, I'll admit. So here's the first one who's not being defensive. He's like, I'll grant you. Okay, that's fine. That's how confident he is. But for one whole week, I went without my lunches and it mounted up your honor bit by bit. And then the chorus echoes, of course. Up your honor bit by bit. It's just a little That's very, very funny. And that reminds me of Sondheim's, um, he does something similar in the God, Why Don't You Love Me? Oh, you do, I see a later blues, Buddy's Folly. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, uh, something she prefers. And she goes, furs, furs, right. you know, like take, like echoing only half the thing and it means something different. Right. Up your honor bit by bit. And then the chorus comes, it's the same as before, you know, a little tin box, a little tin box that a little tin key unlocks. There's nothing unorthodox about a little tin box. In a little tin box, a little tin box, all a glitter with blue chip stocks. That's the most bald-faced capitalist admission so far. And then the capper, there is something delectable, almost respectable, which is the songwriter kind of winking at us or, or making the point at the end. It's a very satisfying, you know, it's it's very knowing. Right. And he's earned that. So just the construction, it's a one joke song. Right. There's, it's just one joke. To but make that interesting and fun and delightful is really, really hard. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, I think your explana- your description and explanation is perfect because, it, yeah, it's like just a great example of a of a comedy song where like you have to build like you can't give away the best line in the first line or the first verse because like then you're just going to blow it for the rest of the time you have to have that build as it goes along or else it's worthless that's right and to and to start with you have to have an insight because what's funny about it a lesser songwriter would just be like it's funny that they're corrupt haha aren't politicians corrupt well we know that already right we know that going in what's funny about it is watching them justify it and right. watching the inside game it's all a setup and then the the ways that they justified and the self-satisfaction it's totally you're almost rooting for them to get away with it (laughs) and there's such heels but but that's that's genius of it let's uh move on to our last section something wonderful where we just you know talk about something in the musical theater world that we are excited about coming up or want to give a shout out to Okay, well, in my immediate future, I'm going to see A Strange Loop in D.C. in a few weeks. Nice. So I'm excited to see it again and to see this new uh, this new production of it. By the way, a little plug on my YouTube channel, Lyrics to Go, I just released an episode with me interviewing him about one of my favorite songs from that show. Oh, nice. Periodically. So, and there's more to come. I interviewed him about a few other songs, too. So head on over to lyrics to go on youtube and subscribe and, and check that out I've, I've interviewed him also about liz fair and tori amos and uh joni mitchell so and uh, you know there's a whole bunch of other content on there including musical theater pete yeah. mills yeah, yeah. Uh, sondheim so yeah thank you all for listening to this episode of scene to song you can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater. We'll answer your questions on our season finale. 
which is going to be broadcast live on Scene to Songs Facebook page Sunday, December 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. You'll also be able to call in during the episode. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in one week for our next episode.